Rufus Wakeman's life in fishing has had an enormous spectrum, ranging from his international travels with World Record Quest to his River Palm Cottages and Fish Camp on the St. Lucie River. His brain is busy with his heart-filled passions and opinions. Today, he speaks about a number of topics, including the survival of the Everglades and the life of those that live on the banks of Lake Okeechobee's discharges. Water and money is now on the Capitol's doorstep in the form of a bill that could undermine years of work in the future of the Everglades and fish habitat. This is an important podcast that needs to be heard. We broke everything. We broke lines. We broke hooks. We broke rods. We broke our minds. We broke marriages. We broke the whole thing. We uh, came up with the idea of going out that night and chasing girls, and whoever had the biggest pair of panties won the pot. I knocked another arrow, and he turned around the other way, and I shot him going through the other way. So I double-lunged him both ways. But it was nothing for us to paddle an air mattress out into government cut. I got him on. All right, now we're going to teach him a lesson. I'm just an old guy that likes to fish. I'm not quitting yet. And he said, well, who the hell do you think you are, Sue App? And I said, that's exactly who I am. Life's journey to the grave should not be one arriving with a pretty, well-preserved body, but rather skid in broadside in a cloud of smoke, thoroughly torn out, thoroughly used up, proclaiming wildly, wow, what a ride. (laughs) There's something fishy going on here. All right, we're ready. Bingo. Well, Rufus, thank you for coming down and uh, joining us here on the uh, on the Millhouse podcast in the Poon House. My pleasure. Really appreciate it. Uh, yesterday was my birthday, February 11th. And Good Lord. if you don't mind me trying to communicate with a Category 5 hangover. I hear you. Holy cow. Um, I can't imagine anything worse than trying to go fish offshore with a massive hangover. Done it. I've, uh, in my younger days, uh, I might have maybe stayed up all night a few times and met people I'd never met before and head on out into the great oh. blue yonder. And it's I, not easy. No. It's, uh, definitely not easy. You got to pay attention and, uh, you know, you're foggy to begin with. And fortunately, sometimes the fish cooperate and you end up being a hero. Right. And, uh, but yeah, it's, uh, there's nothing worse, especially if it's rough. Oh God! You know, no. uh, you know, I I admire it. Uh, I love it. I love what those guys do, especially like uh, Dean Butler and the guys chasing oh, God, granders yeah. down in yeah. Australia. Yeah. But you know, before we get into your you know billfish quest, um, let's go back to what's happening briefly uh, in Tallahassee right now. This bill that is oh, tucked God. into the budget. Explain exactly what's happening with that. Uh, well, I'm not that familiar because it, it, it's been transpiring over the last four days while we've been on the road collecting these, these podcasts. Oh, I know. It's uh, This all slipped in pretty quickly. And uh, I guess the head of the Senate is some dude named Simpson. And, uh, you know, DeSantis has actually done more for the Everglades than any recent governor and you know they passed a lot of good stuff and and then this guy pops in there and DeSantis has you know 
in in writing and in public statements said, I will not allow this bill to go through. So the bill actually, if I understand, I'm not really familiar, but basically it's it's eliminating, I think, $600 million that the $1.1 million was allocated. The $1.1 billion, right, right. Right. It's basically going to remove money from the EAA reservoir, and it's going to turn over jurisdiction of the South Florida Water Management District to none other than the Department of Agriculture. Oh, wow. Which we have no is, chance. Which, They're going to steal all the water, right? It's, you know, and it all comes down to sugar. Right. You know, sugar wants to uh, control the system. And, and, you know, they've got the money. they got the lobby. they got the power. Years ago, when I got flown up to uh, Tallahassee by the Everglades Foundation, myself and a couple of other people from Stewart, Florida, Patrick Stracuzzi, who was a uh, prominent realtor and so forth, and we were, you know, going to plead our case to the state. And, you know, uh, the Everglades Trust Lawyer, Everglades Foundation lawyers, we met with them and they said, you know, on any Friday night, I can go out on town with, on, on the town with my gal. And I'm going to see six lobbyists talking to the right people about the right stuff at the right time. And they just have a very well-oiled machine. They've got a hundred plus lobbyists in Tallahassee, plus another couple hundred ancillary people just waiting for orders. And, and it's just, you know, my mother called them what, what they were back in the seventies is the, you know, the, and you know, the, mm-hmm. and basically I grew up with in the in Palm Beach, and they're they're wonderful people. I mean, my God, they're generous, they're kind. It's just that their industry isn't, mm-hmm. and they've learned how to work the system. You know, with being a Democrat and being a uh, Republican, you know, they're they can play it from both angles. And there was a Time Magazine quote when you know Monica Lewinsky and Bill Clinton were in the Oval Office, and they were about to dilly the dally. The phone rang, and it was. Now, when you can pick your phone up and have a direct line to the Oval Office, that's a hard, you know, that's City Hall, and that's a hard one to fight. You got power. It's, it's, I mean, it's extraordinary power, and it's just, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars, and and it's all, it's all just. I mean, all of it, Washington, D.C., Tallahassee, to a certain extent, local politicians, local county commissioners, it's all. But here's what I don't understand. How much do they need, right? Because put that aside just for a second and put yourself up in a drone. Yeah. And take a look. And you live on the St. Lucie River. I live on the St. Lucie River. You experience the algae discharge. The stench, I actually live in what's called the aerosol plume. Right. That as the wave action rolls that algae onto my beach out at the, you know, on the other side of the mangroves, that goes into suspension and it gets blown up to my back, my porch. So I live in that aerosol plume and they've come up with uh, cyanobacteria and microcystin bacteria are you know, cancerous and, and Alzheimer's and Parkinson's. So these are some, you know, right. grade A ailments that come from this algae. Right. And you're a fisherman. Your and, heart right. has got to be shattered. Oh my God. And, 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 and then you take 
the Indian River, I mean, the St. Lucie River has been void of bottom life, you know, other than an oyster here or there, but there's not been any grass or any of that. I moved up there in 83 and the water was chocolate and, it, you know, there, there hasn't been any real grass since I moved there. But the Indian River Lagoon, which is just adjacent to the St. Lucie River that runs north-south, St. Lucie runs east-west, and then the discharges come from Port Mayaca to the St. Lucie Locks and out to St. Lucie Inlet. And then to the north of that is the Indian River Lagoon, which between Jensen Beach and Fort Pierce, it's something like 300,000 acres of grass that have been decimated. And when I say grass, I mean two, three feet tall. When you walk in it, it tickles your nether region, and it's kind of spooky. And it was a forest of life. You could walk out and see little pilchards and little mullet and crabs. And, and you know, here comes a jack or, right. oh, there goes a snook. Or, oh, look at that trout. Or, you know, and, and it, it was just this beautiful ecosystem. And I think that due to extensive spraying of Roundup that they spray in the Western Corridor, the Lake Okeechobee, the Kissimmee River, all the little ponds and canals in Western Martin and St. Lucie County from Orlando South, they spray Roundup, which is a weed killer and in the name of preventing the right. choking of the waterway by aquatic vegetation. Well, you would think that if you wanted that water to be clean, that you would want it to get choked and slow down the flow and so forth, but that's not how it goes. And it's all big ag, and big ag speaks volumes, you know, lobby-wise in Tallahassee and all over the place. You know, they've got billions of dollars to play with, and I'm not talking just sugar here. You know, cattle is ag, right. you know, Pole beans are ag, pineapples, you know, tomatoes, lettuce, all that. That's ag. So they all kind of scratch each other's backs and sugar being the number one. But let's really talk about what we're dealing with here. We're also dealing with big pharma because sugar is bad. Sugar is probably the worst thing that we can put in our bodies. It, it, it causes obesity, diabetes, joint failure, heart disease, the, and cancer, cancer loves sugar. It, it's, it's, a, it's an acidic environment. Cancer does not like to live in an alkaline environment. So drink a lot of lemon juice and eat certain foods and, you know, you can turn your body into an alkaline heaven and cancer really can't function in that. And so sugar is something that they get kids hooked on, you know, soda pops and candies and blah, blah, blah. And then the next thing you know, you know, your kid's you know, your 12-year-old kid's 50 pounds overweight, and he's destined for a life of obesity and misery. Mm -hmm. And that's what Big Pharma likes. Right. And, we just, and hey, we just came through the Mac Daddy Big Pharma routine of all with COVID, you know? Right. Um, this is the ultimate uh, David and Goliath story. It is. But I think DeSantis was just saying in the last couple of days he's not going to allow, you know, the... This bill ain't making it. Yeah, but... He can but, veto it. But can he veto that separately of the budget? Because it's tucked inside the budget. Can they I th separate the two? I think he two? probably can. I'm, I'm, I mean, you know, this is insanity. Right. I, 
I've been on a soapbox for 30 years. I know a lot of people up at home have been on the soapbox for 30 and 20 and 25 and 15 and 10. Because you're the president of the CCA. I'm the uh, local, in local Martin, County. Uh, Martin County chapter president of the CCA. CCA has unfortunately not taken a public stance against the water. They're not out in the open with it. They're in the shadows as to where Captains for Clean Water is in their face. Right. You know, Daniel and Chris are up in Tallahassee pounding on the door, and, you know, Daniel had a thing on uh, uh, Facebook or Instagram or whatever where he goes, Captains for Clean Water, this is our policy about this bill. And he takes the bill and rips it in half and, you know, throws it on the ground and says, it's a joke. And it's true, you know. Yeah. And, and it's just, you know, we, we've come a long way to restore the Everglades and to restore the flowway and do something, for God's sakes, to mm-hmm. alleviate the pressure on the estuaries and, you know, the St. Lucie River to the east and the Caloosahatchee to the west. And and Lake Okeechobee itself is just a toxic cesspool right. of chemicals. And there's, you know, the bass fishing ain't that great there anymore. And, you know, you want to catch big bass, go up to Headwaters Lake. or up Is this to- a war that's winnable? Well, it is. I mean, it's 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 winnable, but you know, we need more people engaged. Right. You know, everybody who sees this podcast is already engaged. Right. You you, you know, so we need another million people to get engaged, Mm -hmm. and and uh, you know, it's just uh, it's a difficult battle. You know, you know, you're it's once again back to the issue here. You know, you hit me with some sort of a proposal. I'll get the state to you know, fund it, and then you grease me on the back end, right. you know? And that's all All of this is. I mean, where do you think the $400 million goes that we give to Egypt? You know, we give Egypt or, you know, Palestine or whatever. We give all these countries money that basically hate us. It doesn't go to the people. It goes right. to the politicians, and then it comes back to the politicians who sign that bill. Mm-hmm. And, and it's just a vicious circle that, you know, until we all wake up and take our country back and march and, you well, know. Well, thank God we have DeSantis and uh, he's got ah. enough uh, cojones to say, no, we're not going to do this. Well, you know, I rode around in a boat with him and Brian Mass prior to him being elected. And his wife was very engaged. She was all over the algae issue with with its concern for children, you know, mm-hmm. how is this going to affect kids? Well, obviously bad. Florida Sportsman Magazine did a 70-person nasal swab during one of the outbreaks, during one of the real bad algae blooms that we had in Martin County a few years ago. 100% tested positive for microcystin bacteria in their nasal cavity. There you that's go. That's bad. Mm-hmm. I mean, so that if means that, if that's not leverage, come on. <laughs> yeah, but once again, right? You know, Money. you're dealing with big pharma. You're dealing with all this. Hey, a bunch of sick people. That's great. Let's make it worse. You know. Yeah, that's you know. But well, it's it's also important that we bring on you know guests like yourself that can tell us about what it was like in the 80s and 90s because when uh, someone comes down from New York, yeah. and they go to haul over you know the, the beach down there and they park their boat and have a sandbar they go this is beautiful but exactly. little do they know that that beach used to be two foot of turtle grass yeah yeah and it's oh. just spreading awareness of, of the right issues. right oh we get this all the time you know i mean i went to tallahassee and i would you know literally stepped out from behind the mic and showed all the people behind the desk i said hey 
This is where the grass was, you know? I mean, it's up to my waist. And, and to see that get decimated, I, I never really thought they'd do it because the Indian River Lagoon, here's the real funny thing. It's a federally protected aquatic preserve. We lost 1,100 manatees last year due to starvation. We're on track to probably lose that this year. So with a 4,000 to 5,000 total population, we got two or three more years, and the manatees are gone from starvation. And the death that they die is just frightening. There's a woman on Facebook who has gone totally postal on this effort and her name is Katrina something I can't remember her last name offhand but she posted pictures yesterday of a manatee who died a couple of moments after these pictures were taken and it is just horrifying because 100% of the manatees died as turtle grass or some sort of grass Lack of food. they they eat they eat any grass they can find and you know all these tumbleweed algaes and so forth the red and the brown algaes i don't know the names for them but that's not nutrition for them right, right. and you know they need that grass and and you know they're scraping they're scraping algae off rocks they're coming up out of the water to eat sod and any bulrush or weeds that are you know hanging in an estuarine system and it's just terrible. Then you take all the people that swim with them and harass them. No one really, oh, it's just a manatee. You know, we can roll up on it and touch it and fondle it and play with it. Well, that stresses them. Right. You know, so no, all the Crystal River, Homosassa, all those tourist traps where let's go swim with a manatee. Mm-hmm. It's just not in the best interest of the manatee. Right. And you're in violation of the 1972 Marine Mammal Harassment Act. So all these... People do it, but yet no one prosecutes anybody for it. Right. And it's, you know, it's it's on Facebook. Here we are touching manatees. And, you know, no, let's go, you know, show up at their door and arrest them and go get the operator. It's similar to the shark thing we have offshore in Jupiter where they're out there feeding sharks. And now you wonder why you can't catch a snapper or a cobia or a sailfish. Or the sharks are just, you know, they've taken up residency. They know here comes an engine. The dinner bell will ring momentarily. Oh, right. there goes the snap. Bang. And so as a as a limit-oriented society, we're not going to stop fishing. I mean, I don't, but there's a lot of people, your weekend warriors, whose trip is measured by the amount of beer they can carry, which is, that's all fine and dandy. But if you're allowed to keep 10 snapper and you lose 20 and you finally get your 10th one after you've caught thir- 20 or 30 or 40, You've just fed the sharks. You've just created a conservation issue by feeding sharks twice your limit of whatever you're trying to catch. Right. And a cobia, you're allowed two co- or one cobia per person with a four limit in state waters, and I think you can have six in federal waters. Good luck catching a cobia because the sharks are right there. Yeah, yeah, they're just. I lost seven one day and said, "That's it. I'm done." Mm-hmm. And that was ten years ago, and I stopped fishing for them. What's what's the inshore fishery like up where you live, like the snook and trout and well, we have fishery. We have absolutely zero trout in the system anymore. There are no trout. There are no redfish. Why is that? Because there's no grass habitat. There's there's no pinfish. But the trout, are, the Indian River Lagoon right, is right. in from Titusville, pretty much all the way to Stewart is in full total collapse. 
I mean, I'm just going to call it what right. it is. It's in total collapse. Right. Um, so all your fishing is offshore? Basically. Right. Now, the snook fishing, that's the problem, is that that's all we got. So all the pressure is on the snook. We have a gentleman up at home named Captain Bob Buschholz. Bob Buschholz runs a pontoon boat charter operation. He is a head boat for the river. He does a week, you know, like one or two days a week, he'll do a multi-person charter where Tom, Dick, and Harry show up and they don't know each other and they all throw their money in and they go fishing and they have, you know, boom. And then he does private trips also and he's got a couple of characters that he takes on a regular basis. 2020, Bob had 57 redfish for the year. Most of them during the fall, you know, September, October, November at the Stewart Causeway. For the year, he had 112 black drum for the year. 2021, he had zero redfish and 12 black drum for the year. Fishing how many days a year? 200 and plus, 200 right. days. And he does two trips a day, and he's, he is the shrimp king. He is live shrimp on a quarter-ounce troll right jig that he makes himself with a 2-0 hook because you can't buy him with a 2-0 hook. You can only make them with it. They come with threes and fours. But Bob makes it with a 2-0, so he gets everything that gets near the shrimp. And Bob is very savvy. Bob has a craft that he has honed to perfection. And he says he is... I use Bob as a barometer for the fishery. How's the sheep's head fishing? Well, it's a little off, you know. Or how's the triple tail fishing? Well, there, it's a little off. <laughs> you know, I mean, Bob has historic years where he's caught 120, 130 triple tail. You know, up to 25 pounds or 20 right. pounds or whatever. So Bob's got the game down with a pontoon boat. He does the same thing day in and day out. He's a wonderful guy and a real, you know, patron of our river and and uh you know he speaks out when he can but you know it, it's just everything we say falls on deaf ears it seems you know is we're there every day we see it and what used to be this lush beautiful landscape underwater is now lunar it's like the moon it's just right. dead have you ever considered moving Mike Holiday and I have discussed this. Where do we go? You know, where am I going to go where I got the Atlantic Ocean right there and I've got, you know, my friends, mm -hmm. the fish camp. I got, you know, God forbid if I take up bass fishing again. You know, I've got bass <laughs> fishing within an hour. And, you know, I've got friends in West Palm and, and right. you know. It's your home. And, right. It's where I live. I've been there for 38 years. You know, right. I don't really want to go anywhere where, you know, I can't fish or I can't have the possibility of going and catching a sailfish or whatever. So yeah. it's, you know, plus that, you know, the farthest north I could see moving would be Sebastian. And it's really not all that much better than where we are. Right. You know, mm -hmm. so. How is the tarpon fishery? Do you guys still get a good push of mullet run through, you know, the, the fall months? We don't get a lot of mullet anymore, but we have a decent tarpon fishery pretty much year round. But tarpon are the exception of the rule. They breathe air. Right. right. You know, They're so hardy. it's, you know, tarpon is sort of like the nuclear you know, like the real robotic, you know, fish that we can always kind of count on. If you want to run up into the North Fork, far up into the North Fork, and fish to rolling fish that are this big, 
you know, and every now and then, oh, there's a big one. And, you know, you get a bite out of them. And a buddy of mine caught over 100 last year. You know, most of them were mm-hmm. small. He had a couple of big ones, you know, 150, 160 pounds. But for the mm-hmm. most part, you know, it's all a beach thing. Or it's down by the inlet. The migration uh, right in in the crossroads. Yeah, June, July, August, September, and we have them till October. They're down in the crossroads. Sure. You know, now with you know, and then another thing that we have that you know I can't really bitch about because I'm guilty about it is I can buy bait from guys. There's ten guys selling live bait in the manatee pocket every morning, whether it's pilchards or thread fins or goggle eyes or croakers. There's a plethora of live bait that can be purchased. Then I've got side scan sonar. So I've got this machine that can tell me what's 85 feet that way and 85 feet that way. Pull up to a dock, nothing. Go to the next dock, oh, there's something. Pitch a bait, catch a fish, move on. I've got electric motors that I can hit a button and spot lock the boat. Fantastic. Love it. Used to have to throw an anchor. Used to have to go catch my own bait. Used to have to leave an hour early to go catch the bait and come back and meet the people. Or if you had adventurous people and the bait was in deeper water, you could all sit there and sabiki rig it. It was a good time. It was fun. Now you just buy it. Then I got a button I can push and anchor my boat with a power pole in shallow water. So now everybody's a guide. You know, everybody thinks, oh my God, I can make $800 a day. Well, good luck with that, you know, at $5 a gallon for fuel now and and bait, you know, the cost of everything's just going up. So, you know, who knows where it's going to end. But, so you know, it's almost like uh, the refined, sophisticated um, challenges have been depleted. Absolutely. You can all, just- all the... All the stuff that, you know, hey, that guy's got moxie, you know. I mean, right. he's out there early. He he's chucking in that. He's do doing it. it. No, man. I, hey, I'll meet you down at 8 o'clock at the pocket. We'll buy a couple dozen baits. We'll go whack them. You know, I saw where, I believe me, I know where all the docks are because I drive up and down and see where everybody's anchored. You know, oh, I know there's Rufus. He's on that dock. Or there's Holiday. He's on that dock. There's Chris Britton. He's on that dock. Or Chris Britton's over there. Holiday's... And, you know, now all these people are guides now. I mean, I've been up there since 83, guiding since 85. So, you know. Well, let's go You're making me depressed, Rufus. (laughs) (laughs) It doesn't paint a pretty picture, but you know what? It's still, I go out with a friend of mine who's ex-military. You know, Rick's now retired. He did 12 years in the Navy. He was an F-14 pilot over Kuwait and Iraq. And then he was a Pembroke Pines firefighter for 20 years, retired. So he's good to go. He loves to fish. His dad was, uh, you know, had something to do with the mob up in New Jersey. And they said, you know, hey, uh, you're going to have to move away for a little while, like forever, pal. You got to get out of here. So this gentleman grabbed his family and moved to Miami. So my buddy Rick grew up in Miami. And he was like, he was fishing ponds and stuff in New Jersey as a kid, catching bluegills and bass and pike and stuff like that. And then he comes down here and we got jacks and snook and tarpon and all this other stuff. And he's, you know, I'm a kid. I've died and gone to heaven. Right. I, you know, it's, it's warm year round. I don't have to worry about, you know, does the sled work, you know, to go down the hill in the winter? It's does my real turn. And, and so he grew up fishing. So we fish a lot together. And, you know, it's just so depressing. You know, mm-hmm. we both look at each other and we're just like, oh, my God, you know, look so at it. So hard. And, and, but you know what? A day on the water. Now, 
The old saying, you know, a bad day fishing is still better than a good day at work. Well, I'm not so sure about that anymore. You know, a bad day fishing is, well, it's a bad day fishing. If you're in the river and you're struggling to catch a sheep's head on a shrimp jig troll right thing, that's, uh, you know, but if you're offshore, at least you've got this beautiful mother ocean. Oh, there's a leatherback turtle. Oh, there's a mola mola, or there's a whale shark, or there's a, a hammerhead, or some grooviness that mm-hmm. Mother Ocean's going to let you see that day. It's worth it. You know, that makes it a good day is better, or a bad day fishing's, you know, still. But when you're in the river struggling to catch a sheephead on a troll ride or a croaker, for God's sakes, because there's no more habitat and there's no more forage, you know, Butch Constable. We did this gig at the Fish Camp Holiday, put together this thing with um, captains, you know, the old uh, slack tide guide thing. Right. And Coast is still involved, but it's not the guy slack tide thing anymore. It's the guide rendezvous. So Butch Constable, you know, he rolls up to the fish camp and, you know, like here comes Yoda, you know, the wise old, just he's seen it all from both from commercial and from the sport fishing perspective. And, you know, he, oh, my God, you know, it's just, you want to talk about depressing? Hear this guy talk. I gave up snook fishing in 1991 because I saw the beginning of the end is what right. he says. And, and you know, yeah, I, I get it. You know, it's, uh, it's a, you know, of course, he still chucks some chummies out on the beach and his clients catch some little ones on fly. But right. he doesn't pound them in the summer the way everybody does. And that brings us to that whole summer snook fishery. If you go to Australia, they don't fish for barramundi in the closed season. They choose not to fish for them. You have to protect them when they very choose vul- not to. They're vulnerable Correct. then, right? You know, and and the people choose not to. The guides won't guide you for them. Now they're lucky. They have two barramundi fisheries. They got a saltwater fishery. And they've got the reservoirs, the freshwater power, which actually get giant, 60, 70 pounds. And that's a different animal. Mm-hmm. They're not out there trying to procreate and spawn in schools like our snook do. When you throw live baits into a school of snook, and God, I'm guilty of it, and I watched it, and I did it, you know, and now I don't do it because I realized that that school's gone from 400 fish to 50 to 30. And if I hook a fish in that school, that school scatters. Now, that school is waiting for a certain moment in the tide when they can, the girls dump the eggs, the boys dump their, and the miracle of life happens, you know? And there's something with the snook, as the current goes out, the eggs have to have a certain salinity. They actually need some fresh water. So... If the eggs sink and start tumbling on the bottom, that's not good till they get out to wherever they're going. But that's how snook do it. That's why they spawn on the beach and why they spawn in the inlets. Mm. So if we, and and this is what like Dr. Zach Judd, who works at Florida Oceanographic Society and Butch Constable and Holiday, we're all sitting there, well, maybe we should police ourselves and not fish for the snook during the summer. And then, and then Zach goes, well, really doesn't matter because there's nothing for him to eat anyway because there's no more forage. There's no right. more pinfish, pinkfish. There's mullet or few and far between. The pilchard schools get whacked by all the bait guys every day. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it paints a very grim picture. 
If I was king for a day, uh, I'd make a lot of people would not be happy. I would end all commercial fishing in the river, period. No more cast nets. I would end all catch and kill fish in the river. I would just shut it down for five years and do an assessment. And if I could, I'd just, I'd weld the Port Mayaka lock shut, you know? So what would you, you know, give some insight. What would you say to a new, you know, 20 year old kid that loves fishing more than anything and wants to become a guide? Um, I'd say go somewhere else. I mean, you could do it there, but you know, you're not, how many times are clients going to come and fish with you when every year it just gets less and less and less, you know? At some point, they're just coming because they like you and they want to get on a boat with you. I mean, I took a guy out, I don't know, back in the 90s where we had a really bad discharge and I'd hung my hat with a fly shop, Gore Creek, Glen Loquet, from Vale, mm-hmm. from Gore Creek Outfitters. Oh, right. Right. So Glenn calls me at like 7 o'clock at night because, you know, their shop was right adjacent to the prawn broker restaurant. So some dude stumbles out of the prawn broker and rolls into Glenn's shop. Eh, I want to go fishing tomorrow. You know, and Glenn calls me and goes, hey, can you take this guy? And I go, well, yeah, I'll take him. But, you know, the water's just crap and it's, you know, it's totally disgusting. And, I mean, it was Folgers Coffee. It was Folgers. The entire lagoon from Jensen to Fort Pierce was as dark as black coffee. Oh, God. And smelt of fresh water with chunks of hyacinth floating around. So I call the guy, you know, Glenn gives me the number, and I call the gentleman, and I go, look, you know, I'll take you fishing, sir. It's not it's not a problem, you know. We're just probably not going to do that well because we're in the middle of a particularly aggressive discharge right now. The dude said, he goes, look, I'm down here because I'm, you know, on like a two-day sabbatical, two-day getaway from home, and I just want to get on a boat and throw a rod. I don't care if we catch anything. I said, I'm your guy. Are you still guiding a fair amount now? No, I don't guide. I, I, yeah. I donate to charity, and I take. Uh, I have a handful of clients that call me from time to time, and we still go. But right. all the... All new business, new clients, I just refer them to all my friends. Right. I feel like you I need to take a Valium look, right now. Look, here's Yeah, the- it's, it, it's not good. And, and, you know, see, we have, it's kind of a, we have a closed system. So the real exacerbating issue is, is that all the seagrass died. And now all this other algae stuff is dying, all these little tumbleweeds. And as that cellulose breaks down, and you end up with this really fine detritus. It's the decayed plant material that's actually finer than sand. It's a sediment. It's a, when you go like, you know, underwater and you stir this stuff up, it stays in suspension because it's so light. Right. There's an entire college course for oceanographic degree. It's particulate analysis. It's like, you know, that's why the beach, you know, is supposed to have a certain dynamic, a certain size of particle on the beach. It took it a million years to get rid of all the other particles until that particle is in the littoral zone, which is between low water and high water, that zone. So when we get a really bad storm and, they, and that sand gets washed out, 
it would eventually come back. But what happens is, is all the people who own the condos and the construction companies and the politicians get together and go, let's re-nourish the beach. So they put the wrong particle size in that littoral zone. They suck it off from offshore, pump it up on the beach, or they bring it in with dump trucks, and then they have to remove it because now the turtles can't nest. I mean, it just, you know. When man gets so, in the way oh, of God, Mother it's Nature, just, yeah. it's not good. Well, look, here, I'm just uh, speculating why you stay there. You don't move because right. that is your home. Your friends are there. Right. You've been there for 40 years. Yep. But you travel the world. I do. You, you go elsewhere to fish. Yes, I do. Yeah, big time. Let's yep. go back just a little bit. Uh, connect the dots. Obviously, you're a descendant of the, the John Deere family. Yep. Uh who, where, and how did Rufus Wakeman uh, get to where he is now well, from that name, John well, Deere? Well, John Deere was our great-great-great-grandfather, my generation. He's my kid's great-great-great-great-grandfather. But, you know, he was a little old blacksmith from Burlington, Vermont. And uh, as a kid, he used to polish his mother's needles. She was a seamstress. His father was a tailor. They made clothes. Wow. So... He would take his mother's needles. Everything back then in the early 1800s was hand-forged with a hammer on an anvil with fire, you know, forged mm-hmm. in fire. And so he polished his mother's needles with pumice. And therefore, when she stuck them through the fabric, they went through the fabric better. So as he became a young man and an apprentice blacksmith, he figured he'd polish his shovels and his rakes and his hoes and his pitchforks. So people stopped to buy his stuff because it worked better than that guy's stuff. So then he moved to Grand Detour, Illinois, which is where John Deere is located now in Moline, Illinois. And people moving west would stop and purchase the hand tools that he polished because they passed through the Midwestern loam well. Now, the plows, the, the, the plow mm-hmm. behind the team of oxen or sure. the team of horses was a hand-forged plow with a very rough surface because you can only get it so smooth beating it with a hammer, you know, and it's black steel. And, you know, they just didn't really polish a whole lot of stuff. He tried, and it still was such a rough surface that it just would not shed that Midwestern loam. So as people moved west... They got to Illinois, turned around, and moved back. Because you'd engage the plow, you'd go 20 feet, back the horses up, jack the plow out of the ground. They all had little wooden scrapers, and they'd reach down and scrape the crap off that plow. Then they'd re-engage it, snap the whip, the horses would go 20 or 30 feet, back them up, and so on. So he gets a call not a phone call but a call someone comes calling knocks on the door and says come on i need some assistance i have a mill a grist mill and i need you to help me repair this mill it needs some you know iron work and some stuff and some and back then blacksmiths door hinges door hasps all kinds of candelabras for you know to put because we had no electricity so it was all just candles and stuff like that. So blacksmiths were a very revered member of the community. They were almost like a doctor, you know. If shit broke, you'd come and get the blacksmith and he'd come and fix it. 
So he fixed this guy's grist mill. This is how the story goes. And the guy goes, hey, you know, I'm a little light on cash, but, you know, don't worry, buddy. I'll make it up to you. I'm fine. Boom. High five. Down the road we go. A little while later, a year or two years later, this dude shows up with a piece of polished Sheffield steel, a two-man bucksaw blade. You know, now the bucksaw blade's probably that deep with th this much as teeth, you know? And right. it's those big, giant two-man bucksaw. Right, right. Well, it had snapped, so he goes, well, here's this chunk of steel. I, I got no use for it, and maybe you could do something with it. And the, the bell went off. And he cut the teeth off and fashioned a plow out of that polished Sheffield steel from England and applied for the patent for the first self-scouring steel plow. And that was in 1837. He did not receive the patent until post-Civil War 1867. By that time, he had a pretty good thing, pretty good gig going, you know. And he was the blacksmith and everything was happening and he was pumping out these... Uh, polished you know plows and so forth and his son was kind of a you know a mover groover shaker and had some you know business acumen and just said hey look dad you just hang out over here and you do your thing and i'm gonna run the show they basically just bought all the competition around them and you mm. know and now it's a multinational yeah they're in six or seven countries and but it's great. You know, as a kid, I wasn't really sure about the whole thing. But as an adult, I'm proud to be part of that heritage. And, right. and he really is one of the people who changed the world. Right. Absolutely. You know? um, but I first met you. I think I met you in Homosassa. Homosassa we've been, we've with been, Doug Hannon. Yes, that's right. Yep. But we've been talking about uh, Homosassa a little bit. And, yep. you know, you had a big presence over there for quite a while. Yep. And you did catch a really big fish. Tell yep. us about that big fish and the tail and all that. Oh, God. So Billy Pate had this record of yeah. 188, 188. for 20, 25 yep. years. Right. So I was fishing with Captain Mike Hewlett, who came up from the Keys. Right. And so we're there, and we're outside the low rack. You know, it's typical Whoville day, you know, not a whole lot happening. And, you know, Mike goes, hey, man, I got a big wad of fish rolling in here. So, all right, I get up. I start paying attention, get all, make sure I'm not standing on my fly line and all that sort of stuff and lay the fly out and strip, strip and watch this fish literally come from four fish behind up into the pack and piles on this fly, get tight and off. And she just never jumps, turns around and heads to Mexico. And I mean, I'm, you know, I got an able five and I'm, you know, I'm backing off. The, okay. There's better back off a little more and shit. I'm in free spool now, you know, cause I can't, even, I can't even see it. You know, right. she's so far. And, 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 uh, you know, we Mike comes down off the platform and racks the pole and fires up the engine and away we go. And, you know, we get the girl up off the bow and Mike's looking at her. He goes, man, that's a big fish. And I'm like, well, whatever you make the call, you know, you're the guide. You, you've got the, uh, expertise, you know what this thing is. And I mean, it's just a really big fish to me. I've never, you know, this is my third year there or so fourth year there. And, I had had some big fish on, but they all got off a whole lot sooner than this one did. And, right. Okay, and it was 16-pound tippet, and all right, let's get it up. So Mike grabs the gaff, swings the gaff, 
sticks her up in the upper part of the back, rolls her up into the boat, and we look, and she's missing half her tail. And I'm like, damn. And we put the tape on her, and it's, you know, she's 78 and a half or something long and 43 and a half or something around the gut. And it comes, you know, we do the math on a calculator and because we had those things back then in the boat ready to do it. Sure. And, uh, you know, she came out at, you know, 187 or 186 and a half, and we figured, okay, well, you know, we stuck it, so let's go. Take her for a boat ride. We took her for a boat ride, and she came in at 186 and a half. But missing half the tail, from that's a, the from first a shark? piece of tail that ruined my day. <laughs> but no, it was uh, it was an old wound. So I called Mike Kirkhart from New Wave. Is and that my, a shark bite? It was an old wound. We don't know how. Yeah. It did not happen then. It had all healed over and it was But not, she still fought pretty hard? She never jumped, but she just went to the, like I said, it was 300 yards, 250 yards in a straight line. The motor was still She sufficient. never deviated or anything. It was a straight line. Interesting. And I remember just holding on going, wow. Now I've caught another. I've caught two wounded tarpon in my life, and they both eat the fly right now. Right. The other one was in the Keys fishing with Bill Elliott. Right. And I laid the fly. It was a cockroach fly, and I laid the fly out, you know, probably, you know, thinking I'm just going to lead her a little bit. I mean, that fly hit the water, and it was game on, man. She came and ate. She only had one eye. That was a wounded fish. A wounded fish wounded also. Fish. Wounded fish are, they're going to capitalize on any opportunity they get. Right. You know? But yeah, Homosass is a near and dear place. I, that's just a magical, you know, uh, when Monty Burke wrote that book, I got a phone call and I, I said, yeah, man, you know, this is, this is, uh, this is like, you know, the holy grail of fly fishing. And if you really want to test your moxie as an angler, go to Whoville and, See if you can do this. That's what you called it, Whoville? Yeah, Whoville, yeah. yeah. Well, you know, uh, speaking with Dan Malzone just recently, yeah. he was saying, well, the book was maybe a little bit biased, you know, with Tom being the main character. Tom was the main character, yeah. yes. But the the book, um, Lords of the Fly, yeah. captures the full spectrum of tarpon fishing. Absolutely. It, it you talks know. about the fish, the evolution, yep. and the guys who chase them. And yep. I thought it was a great, yep. great um, biography yeah. uh, about all the different players in the game. Exactly. Along with the fish, too. Yep. Um, but how? where did you gravitate to from the Poon House? Because that died up. Right. Is that when you started going offshore and chasing billfish? Well, you know, I, you know, I started chasing billfish offshore with a fly rod in 88. Actually, 86. We went to Mexico and, you know, tequila was not our friend at that point in my life. And it was just everything was a fog. And, you know, you could go to Mexico and... um you know, get certain things there that you couldn't get here easily mm-hmm. at the pharmacia. You know? <laughs> and, and so, you know, we'd be sitting there on the boat, you know, and pop, pop a Valium or whatnot and have a shot of tequila and look at the flat line and go, hey, there's a sale on the flat line. You want it? <laughs> you know? That's funny. And so it was, uh, you know, finally in about 87, I guess, is uh, when I, you know, caught my first sailfish on fly down there with Wink Dorsbacker and Will Dixon. And then I went to Homosassa that same year and that kind of occupied. But I'd always go to Isla and then I'd go to Homosassa. Mm-hmm. And it was kind of like I'd go there for a week and then I'd come home and two or three days later I'd go to Homosassa. I find it hard that 
you have such great passion for offshore and inshore, you know, hunting. Yeah. And then offshore, the boat's kind of hunting, you know, trolling yeah. the baits. Um, do you get bored out there waiting for a fish to find you guys? Nah, it's not something, you know, when you're offshore, I've been fortunate enough. I got to fish with uh, uh, Nick Smith and Chip Schaefer invited me to fish the fads back in 2015. And the fads are offshore Costa Rica. If you don't know what they are, they're a series of seamounts offshore in about six or 7,000 feet of water. And I believe it was the Schwest family out of Louisiana who decided to start to try to drop these fads on top of the seamounts. Now, it's 6,000 feet, and the seamount comes up to 1,500 feet or 1,200 feet. So they've got these sophisticated bathymetric sonars that give you like a 3D printout of you know, what the top of that actual body of land 1,500 feet down looks like. Mm -hmm. And then they could establish how the currents are going to be. And, you know, they're taking a sick, you know, they're taking a chunk of concrete bigger than the, twice as big as this desk, you know, eight or six or eight or 10,000 pounds of concrete to hold the cable, a right. bunch of rebar sticking out of it because right. they lost a few that slipped off the edge. And, you know, they drop these fads with the cable and a scuba tank about as big as I am or bigger. Which and is that, big. And that's right. <laughs> and, that, and that stays at, you know, about 100 feet down. And then they go down and they attach a top shot to this scuba tank or this air tank that's, you know, suspended. But these, you know, it's fifteen twenty thousand dollars per fad. Right. You know, there's a lot of cable and a lot of technology and a lot of guesswork and a lot of effort and a lot of manpower and a lot of concrete and it improved the fishery by tenfold well what happened was was prior to the fads being deployed every now and then a boat would go out there and they'd have you know like a good day marlin fishing is you know two or three well these guys would venture out there and they'd come back you know they'd spend the night you know they'd chug out there and they'd spend the night and they'd come back and go you know, well, we raised 12 in two days, you know, and oh my God, 12 in two days, that's unbelievable. You know, now you do that in the DR, but they're all 100 pounds. You know, these get 300, 350, and so forth. So then they dropped these fads on it, and it basically sent all the Billfish Foundation and NOAA and NMFS and all their information went out the window because now we're seeing, you know, thousands of fish are being reported. You know, one boat had see six or seven hundred. If you, I mean, look at Bubba Carter; he's out sure. there all the time. And so now there's more fish in the ocean than they would to, they, 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 they didn't originally know, suspected. Right. right? You know exactly. Now these are all small fish; they're all under three hundred pounds. Which you know, let's face it, in the world of marlin, mm -hmm. it ain't big till it's seven or eight. You know, that's right. how. You know, five and sixes are that's a good fish, mate. You know, like that. Or <laughs> so these you know, uh, fast, or these... good fish, bro. If you're in Hawaii, <laughs> you know. <laughs> but I mean. These these guys are, you know, they, they've just got it down. I mean, and, and then I really hit the jackpot and got to fish with Chris three, Chris Sheeter three times out there. Uh, these fads, fish uh, attractive devices. Right, fish attracting devices. Yeah, so yes. what bait were these fads collecting? Tunas. Yeah, mostly little yellow fins about this big. And that's what marlin like to eat. And the marlin love to eat them. So, you know, first thing you do when you get out there, you make a pass over the fad. If it's thick with bait, you start jigging them. And, you know, they put out the little king king jigs with six hooks and you troll them and boom, boom, boom. And the next thing you know, you got 15 tunas. Yeah, you're and, right. you know, well, you got lunch, too. Yeah. I mean, tuna's a tuna. I don't care if he's that big or that big. It's right. They all eat the same. So, 
you know, they, you know, you'd fillet some of them for lunch and throw them on ice and we'd have sashimi for lunch or, you know, seared tuna for lunch or something like that. And then the rest of them get bridled up. Yeah. And, and so I'm fishing with Nick and the first day we, um, we're down at one of the fads, I think off Golfito and, and, you know, we make, I think we get one fish and then we're, Nick just goes, we're out of here. Let's go. So Chip fires it up and we run to another fad, you know, that's like 30 miles away and, and, and we get there and there's bait. And so Conejo, who his mate is, you know, Nick gets the little tunas in the boat and Nick's got this God awful thing that he puts on the front of the tuna it's like a pound of you know like a lure head like the exterminator or some like a barrel uh, yeah. sinker of some kind it's some kind of groovy polished chrome thing with a skirt and they look so he tells me he goes wait wait till this tuna is on that teaser out there i kid you not man one minute and Boom, there it is. And I'm like, you're shitting me. And this is a live tuna. No, dead, oh, dead, dead tuna, tuna slapping, but it's right. a whole different animal from, you know, when that tuna is doing this and bouncing and, <laughs> and swimming and the vibes it's throwing out. It's just it's just marlin candy. It's just like ringing the doorbell, you know. Who, who designed that skirt for that uh, that tuna? I don't know. It's some uh, thing from the West Coast, some company from the West Coast. It's kind of like a Wahoo lure. Right. You know, like a high-speed gig with sort of a, flathead but you know you know you could use anything i mean it doesn't really matter but that's was nick's thing and it keeps it down because tunas really want to flop around a lot so you want them to dig and you know swim and send out that vibe and flopping around is great and it still flops around you know and but it's just it's an unbelievable fishery but you know to the last time I had the honor of fishing with Sheeter out there, you know, we I had fished the weekend prior, and then I came home and I went back down with another friend of mine. And I mean, I had my son out there and Pat Ford, and and it was just you know one of those on Golden Pond moments right. to be out there with my son with Chris running the boat. Oh, and, cool! You know, at the height of the game, fly fishing for blue marlin, and my kid caught a few, and then we're pitching tunas at him and catching them on tunas and circle hooks, and so anyway. I asked Sheeter, I, I go, so what's your best day out here? You know, like what's considered the, you know, the shit. And he goes, well, we had 22 on bait one day and my best day on fly is 11. So I had a buddy of mine with me who we kind of, I, I said, look, we're going to try something. I'm going to throw the fly. If you don't eat it, you throw the tuna. We caught 17. I had seven on fly and 10 on bait. And that night, Sheeter comes down out of the bridge or out of the shower, and he sits down. And he goes, you know, you asked me what our best day was, 22 and 11. He goes, I've never had a chance to have two guys in the boat who really don't care who catches the fish. You know, that if it doesn't eat the fly, great. The throw the bait. The doubled. Yeah, yeah, you know. And he said that's a really rare thing in fishing to have a fly fisherman that doesn't mind watching someone else catch a fish. And I go, well, that's what it's all about. Right. And plus that, he's paying for half. (laughs) (laughs) You know? So, and I don't expect to catch as many fish as him anyway, because, you know, I'm throwing, I'm chucking a a chicken. Right. I mean, come on, you know, I'm, 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 I'm against the eight ball already. You know, it's, it's already bad. I got a 12, you know, when I explain to people that I have this much leader, 
And it's got this much of a sword on the front of its face that's like 80 crits. So you're talking about a 12-inch bite tip. 12-inch bite tip. And you got a big bill that wants to slash it around. So are you always fishing IGFA legal? I can't do it any other way. I just can't. It's like moving a golf ball in the fairway when you're playing golf. You just don't touch that ball. It's just, I want to fly fish. I don't want to fish with fly tackle. Right. And there's a difference. Now, that being said, Brazil, I'll throw 60-pound all the way to the butt section. Right, boom, let's go. Because you can't get you certain can't fish. You can't get them out. I, I mean, you know, it's kind of like, gee, let's go to New Guinea and try to catch a New Guinea black bass on 12. That's ain't, just not going to happen. You know, They're I mean, so lefty, powerful, so much structure. Yeah, Lefty tells his about story, Dean Butler. Oh, my God, his story about dicking around with those New Guinea bass. He's like, you know, well, I started out with, you know, 16-pound tippet and I hook a fish and boom, it's gone. And then, you know, okay, let me try a 20-pound tip. And I don't even think there was 20. There wasn't even a category then, but right. he did it. And then he goes to 30, loses them, and then he goes, screw it. And he goes like 60 right to the fly. He gets the bite. He wraps the line around the handle and back it up. And the guy backs the boat up. And that was Lefty Cray's story. And only he can tell it the way he tells it. Right. Lord Lefty, I'm a hail to Lefty. Hail to Lefty. Hail to Lefty. You know, I'll tell you, Lefty came to my fish camp a couple of times, and it was such an honor. And and uh, and uh, the last two times I went to ICAST was literally to sit with Lefty. Right. And I would sit. I sat with him for three hours both days the last two years he went. And I'd, I'd sit there, and, you know, Just- at the TFO booth, and, you know, everybody would come. So you get to see everybody that's sure. at ICAST who's worth seeing. In the fly world, you know, because everyone's going to eke their way over and see Lefty. And Jake Jordan, too. Right. You know, Jake would be on one side, Lefty would be in the middle, and I'd be on the other side. And I'd just sit there for hours and just kind of fly on the wall sort of it's stuff. It's like and, sitting at the table at the Last Supper. Yeah. And, you know, Bob Rich does that gig in – or not Bob Rich, but Bob Bryan does that uh, thing in uh, Bermuda, the tuna, the elephant tuna tournament right. that's all charity. Mm-hmm. Well – he would put these groups together and they'd bring them to the fish camp and it, you know, and so lefty would come to my fish camp and, you know, it it was just great. So one year they had it in the keys and it was down at uh, the Islander. And so lefty was there and I just set my camera up and got 13 minutes of lefty talking about like the battle of the bulge. Oh, wow. Cause he was at the battle of the bulge. And I mean, you know, what a, they just don't make men like that anymore. No. There's very few and far between. Somebody who goes from, you know, a military career, you know, he almost dies of anthrax, so they name a they name a, you know, uh, strain of anthrax after him. And then he goes to uh, you know, be a outdoor writer for the Miami Herald and he, you know, he's fly fishing all over the world and he's demonstrations and his demonstrations were second to none his right. his method of teaching and his communication skills with a crowd didn't matter if there was a hundred people there or ten people you got the same schmeal and it was perfect and it was awesome and if there was a really cute girl that was showing cleavage he dropped a little powder puff right in her you know <laughs> he'd do the thing and then she'd be like all blushed and and then he'd like crawl around her like a spider monkey and you know here honey and 
in five yeah. minutes, she's throwing 70 feet, you know, and she just doesn't, she just found out what a fly rod was because her boyfriend brought her, you know, and it was just, just, you just don't, you know, no. God, we lost a good one there, you know, American treasure. Yeah. I mean, a complete treasure. Yes, absolutely. You know, and there's not many people you can say that about period. Right. You know, Jimmy Stewart, John Wayne, Lefty Cray, you know? Right. I mean, maybe Ronald Reagan. Mount Rushmore right there. Well, I want to bring it back to the uh, bill fishing. You caught every species of bill billfish besides the swordfish Correct. in 11 months. Yes. What was that like? You know, it was a it was a a quest. It's basically how I started out. I, you know, called my financial people in New York and said, "Hey man, I'm going to go on this little quest. <laughs> so, I need you to earmark some money. I'm not sure where it's going to end up." Well, I had to go back to Hawaii. You go to Hawaii, and I stepped on the the line, got wrapped around my leg, and there goes my spearfish. So I fish for four more days and never see another spearfish. Then I go back to Australia because when I was there with fishing with a particular guide, you know, he didn't subscribe to the twenty pound tippet. So I kind of I was on his boat, so I fished his way, and then you know, I had to go catch a black marlin again. Isla Mujeres, we raised, I don't know, 40 sailfish that would not come. I, I did hook one, and it jumped and went down, and the fly fell out. So I had to go back to Isla Mujeres to catch another sailfish, which we did. But, you know, when you know you travel to Hawaii, and then you travel to Australia, and then you travel, you know, it's, it gets expensive. So it gets depressing. Right. Was it, was it, did it become more arduous than fun? Well, you know, I love measuring stuff like my tippets and all that. So that's always fun. And now it's it's because there's the great unknown. Right. You know, the great, I'm going out, you know, the salt and the R maybe, you know, that kind of attitude. And right. no, it, but yeah, you know, when you're watching, you know, well, there goes 20 grand and I don't have, you know, something to show for. And what was the bill that year, your fishing expenses? I don't know, somewhere around 200 grand, you know. Right. Is it, uh, let me ask you this, is catching a billfish easy? Once you get them on and you get through the first run, it's just like any other thing. You so know, anybody, you who's got, on. anybody who has a lot of money can do this. It might Pretty take much. a little bit longer than a year. Yeah, you know. but, but that guy who has money chasing a billfish, he might not be able to go to the Keys and catch a big tarpon. Where you Probably not, you know. I mean, it's, you know, there's... It, or, it's or, all or, different. Or, or, I mean, you know, a big tournament. Uh, well, the tournament thing, and that's where you know, I never, I have fished. I fished the Holly once. Mm -hmm. I got second in the fifteen pound division, and I never fished another tarpon tournament. I fished the Billy Pate tournament three or four times, maybe four or five times. That and was then, the billfish tournament. Yeah, down in Costa Rica. Okay. And, you know, we never did anything because, you know, we were on a slow boat and, and we just never did shit. And, you know, like Richard Chalimi with Jeff McFadden and Jim Gallagher, I mean, they, you know, they're catching 12 right. for the three days and, you know, we get four, you know. And, I mean, they'd have one day where they, you know, had six. And so that's right. that, you know. No competition. And, uh, you know, it's – and, yeah, they won it multiple years in a row. And then when Billy – and then when Billy – walked away from that it became the harry gray tournament after harry died i fished it one year and it was all different you know it was just not having harry there now i'm because i used to fish with harry right on his boat the carib sea and 
So not having him there, kind of eh. Right. And so I didn't fish it. Then, you know, Jake pounds on me. And, oh, I fished a couple of tournaments out of Stewart. There was an old thing called the South Florida, or no, Saltwater Flats Fishing Association. And it was this renegade guy who put this tournament together where you had zones. So you had to fish either your zone or another zone, and you had to fish in the top three in that zone to qualify for the, the finals. So... The first year we qualified, we went to Marco Island, and it was, I mean, 40 degrees. It was horrifying. And my buddy caught a redfish on a DOA shrimp somewhere where we shouldn't have caught a redfish. So, great. We got a redfish. We were fishing for snook at this Blue Bay Bridge or whatever it is down in Goodland, you know, by Marco Island. Right. And Paul catches a redfish. Then he catches a snook. And I go, okay, I know where the trout is. Let's go. And he caught a trout. So he slammed out. But since I was guiding him, I thought I was semi-important. And, uh, <laughs> you know, so then the next, and, and, and it was real funny because that day we went, I wanted to go back to the bridge because I had a trout and I figured, all right, well, maybe I'll catch a snook. And I ran aground. Oh, God. So here we are. There's the bridge. There's the channel. And we're on the mud. And I get up on the platform and I put the pole in the water and I'm six feet in the mud and I put this ass into it. <laughs> and the boat moves it's about a big ass. <laughs> the boat moves about six inches. And I go, We're good to go. And Paul's like, I don't know what you're talking about. This is not good to go. I've got a grand slam and we're not gonna make the way in. And I go, We're gonna make it. And I go, get on that side of the boat. And I put the boat. You know, and I push and the boat moves eight inches, you know, and then, okay, we're, we can do this. I think I said, put the electric motor over the bow into the mud and crank it on high just to wash water over the hull. And then I move a foot and rah, 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 the electric motors making all <laughs> kinds of noise. And we made it to the channel and I turned and looked at the bridge and he said, don't even think about it. And we went back and we put the you know gave him our scorecard and stuff and he ended up winning that year uh, so then the next year paul mark nichols and i doa mark fished we sure. fished in stewart and we had like a 94 inch slam you know we had like a 36 or 37 inch snook a 30 inch trout and a 28 or 30 inch redfish or something it was like 94 inches so you you liked you liked tournaments i right? did i did that but these were more fun you fun, know yeah, not the so then we end up in flamingo to fish and so mark and i go down and we scout out on like a tuesday and we run into murphy at the boat ramp sure and i'm thinking you know i look at murphy and i go he goes you guys fishing that yeah yeah we're fishing the gig and he goes and i just said yeah we're gonna we really got a chance against beating you you're right right, Who lives right, there. right. you know this is your land and Fort Ice and everybody. So we figured, you know, we don't really know this area that well. I'm not going to. And we ran up to the shark, you know, during the free sure. screwing around day. And so we go down there and, and you know, we all discuss this. We go, look, why don't we just go over here to Joe Kemp Key, which is, you know, there's the ramp. I'm, I can see the ramp the whole time I'm fishing mm -hmm. the whole day. So we fish the first day there and we get lucky and we catch a slam. You know, we catch snook trout redfish, but we were taking the three inch DOA shrimp and fashioning a weed guard out of wire up over its hook, you know, and it worked really well because you could let this thing settle in the grass right. and give it a twitch. She'd shed the grass. You'd get the little puff of sand coming off the grass and you'd get the sound. 
And I mean, boom, we caught a bunch of trout. We caught 28 inch snook that day. And you know, a 20 some, a 24 inch redfish or 23 mm-hmm. inch redfish. So then the next, that night we're sitting around shooting the shit and, and Blair Wiggins tells us that he had a couple of big bites at key that were probably snooks. So now Mark and I look at each other. All right. Key, cool. <laughs> so, so we pull around the backside of key and there is like a weather station. It's like two pilings and some. Yeah, I know exactly. Crap. Yeah, we fish right there. So too. I turn and look at the guys and I go, it's the Roosevelt Bridge. You know, I mean, <laughs> you know, because this is it's like structure in the middle of nowhere. I take a, sh- a little charcoal colored or gray colored smoke colored DOA terrorized fired up there. Boom. First cast, catch a 24 inch snook. Great. Second catch, catch a 26-inch snook. Oh, this is we're in there. Mark flips a bait buster over by the mangroves and gets tied to a 33-inch snook, which for Flamingo, that's a big snook. Sure. So, and literally, we were within sight of the boat ramp both days. We never ran more than a mile. And we sat there and we fished the whole time. And we ended up beating a guy in a gino by about an inch and a half. Oh, wow. I mean, that's how, you know, this guy, because he couldn't go anywhere. He's in a gear. Yeah, he can't Meanwhile, travel. everybody else is running up to the Broad River oh, and the Harney River. Did you win? The, yeah, yeah we, yeah, we won a... So you beat Rick Murphy. Yes, we beat Murphy and Fordyce. Fordyce showed up at the weigh-in. Now, so we get to the weigh-in, and the FWC, back it was the, you know, the, the uh, Marine Patrol. It wasn't Fish and Wildlife. Mm-hmm. It was the Florida Marine Patrol, the FMP, you know. So they're at the ramp. And they're like, guys, you can't have a tournament in a state park. So the 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 tournament dude, whatever his name was, he calls the, like the Radisson Hotel in Florida City and says, "Look, I got a bunch of people. We can be there in forty minutes or an hour. We need some sort of a, uh, you know, a, a like a conference room." Yeah, sure, we got it. You know, so we all run. You know, you just see this exodus of cars driving down <laughs> back out of the park you know by, right. by robert is here in florida and into florida city and and yeah sure you enough we, 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 we won it you Good know for you let's go back to the marlin briefly uh i understand i've done it a little bit but it's very difficult for a fish for to pull a fish off of a live teaser bait to a fly is that correct well if you're fishing a live tuna you know somehow in a kite or whatever right. Like in Panama, that that's, you know, we went to Tropic Star and we want to fly fish and we're telling the mate we want to fly fish as he's bridling up a live bonita. Right. And he throw, he goes, fly fish, no problem, senor, no problem. As he throws the live bait with a 10-0 circle hook in its head in the water. <laughs> and then we're like, no, 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 we want to fly fish and he's bridling up the other one. Yeah, with no the problem, senor, no problem, throws it out. <laughs> Throw those- so we're like, <laughs> okay. you know, and so we never really got the chance there. You know, right. we, we were there in Tropic Star. We had a really terrible week. It was, you know, that last, that new moon in January, which is historically like a 65 to 70 fish week. Right. Our week, it was 33. Right. We did catch a blue and we saw a black and we caught a few sailfish on Panama baits. But no, it's, uh, I have not had the, 
the experience. The, the experience of teasing off a live bait. Right. You know? um, is that a big, a, still a big part of your life? Uh, bill fishing with flies? Well, it is, but you or know, you put right that now, aside now. No, I'm, I mean, I'm just, now that my son is, they got their new 64 Viking for his boss man, and they're in West Palm, and they're going to go back to Costa Rica. And I'm sure that the, the boss man would, you know, I've been told by the captain, yeah, the boss man wants his boat to be exercised from time to time. <laughs> yeah, right. So, so You'll be going back. I'll, I'll be down there. I mean, it's a beautiful boat. Brandon's a great captain. My son knows every aspect of fly fishing and, and, right. and trolling, and he's fished with Tim Richardson in the DR and VJ Bell, and he's fished in For Virginia. Sure. I mean, he won a daily in the, in the Ocean City or the Pirates or whatever the hell, one of them tournaments up there. You know, and so, yeah, no, I look forward to going back and, and getting into it. But no, I'm not going to pursue it at that I, level that again, I did. Yeah. Well, we, it, we've all read the book, The Tales of the Madam and the Hooker. Yeah. I wanted to ask you, what was it like? And we fished with Skip two years yep. ago in Capos. But I wanted yeah. to ask you, what was it like fishing with um, Kunta and Skip? And well, the whole Kunta team? was never there. I fished with Skip and it was Trevor Cockle in Africa. And John Cochran and his brother were like the engineer and the... Uh, uh, you know, the um, concierge, you know, dude that would meet you at the airport and make sure your passport and all that, that you didn't get, you know, shot coming through customs. And uh, Dakar, Senegal is a pretty strange place. And uh, but no, uh, Skip is, you know, that was one of my first real moments of, OK, Blue Marlin really do elicit a different response from an individual because it's like sail on the teaser. <laughs> Seated, seated on the flat yeah. line. Yeah, yeah, something. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> you know, but when that blue marlin came in, you know, and it was full on, and you know, to the point where I actually, you know, after you know the fish came in, my friend Donald Lee's dropped back and you know got a bite and and fish jumped through the hook, and it was uh, so I walked upstairs and I said, you know, wow, man, I really noticed a a change in the octave in your voice with a blue marlin he goes yeah well you know they are just a supercharged it's all happening a lot faster it's you know really going and uh that was in 88 now i had gone to we had bought i think it was in either 87 or 88 we had bought a trip to fish the hawaiian international billfish tournament at the igfa auction now, my buddy bought the trip, and he got it for like $1,800. Now, this is four days fishing in Hawaii with hotel room for four people. Oh, my God. You know, stole. for $1,800. It's like a $15,000 trip, right. you know? And this, you know, the fishing was a grand a day. That's, you know, it's Hawaii's still one of the more inexpensive places to fish if you want to fish for marlin. It's, you know, 1500 a day by now, I'm sure. Madeira, it's fifteen or 1800 a day. But, you know, you go to these fad trips in Costa Rica, it's four grand a day or five grand a day by now, you know. But it's, uh, no, Skip is, uh, well, what can you say? I mean, you know, just legendary. And Was there any partying going on? Not a lot, no. By that time, he had slowed down considerably. We did get drunk one night in Cannes with Peter Wright and uh, you know, it all just went downhill. Nothing good happens after 10 o'clock. Those, those Aussies <laughs> can know. drink. 
Oh, God, yeah. Well, the Aussies are, you know. But it was Scott Levin, Greg Mercurio. Greg Mercurio now runs the Yankee captain out of Key West. He's the bottom guru. The whole time we're in Australia, Greg's like, I want to catch meat. I want to catch meat. Fuck these Marlin. I want to catch really? meat. Oh, yeah. I mean, the day that we went jigging for friggin' coral trout, you, this guy was on fire, man. He's like, boom, and gets a and I mean, it's just, he's just a one man winch, you know, and the coral trout were coming over the gunnel like that, you know, and, and now he's running the premier operation out of Key West, the Yankee captain. So right. Greg fulfilled his dream, dream of being right. a bottom fisherman, you Boy, know, I just don't get that. I mean, it's good fun. I mean, I've done it a lot with RT, you know, where, you know, you take a, a pilchard on a little one oh you know, wizard hook with yeah. a knocker rig and it hits the bottom and what do I got? Okay, it's a red grouper. Boom. What do I got? Oh, it's a mutton snapper. And right. So I'll tell you a good story about RT. We were fishing up in the quicksands and we were slaying the muttons. So I go, Do you think I could get one on fly? And RT goes, Yeah, sure, no problem. So I Pat Ford gives me a reel that he's got in his bag that's got a sinking line. And I put it on and string up, you know, a 10 weight and I get ready and so forth. So RT gets, all, everybody get your line out of the water. He starts cutting up ballyhoo. He gets a nice little pound of ballyhoo going, you know, a little mound of ballyhoo going and throws out a piece, throws out two pieces, throws out a piece, throws out a couple more pieces, you know, you know, 10 feet sure. between each piece, you know, and about, you know, 10 minutes into that, he had a, you know, we drifted for maybe, I don't know, like 100 feet, 200 feet. He goes, all right, somebody throw a, Rufus, get your fly in the water. You drop a bait down to the bottom and catch whatever. So my buddy drops a bait down. He gets tight on what is a little mangrove snapper. And the snapper comes up and here comes a mutton right up. There he is. And he eats my fly. And I'm like, you've just got to be shitting me. The magic just available. I, 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 I mean, what would? How did you come up with? I right. want to catch a mutton snapper on fly. Well, I'm going to put out a trail of ballyhoo, and then you're going to catch a fish and bring it up into the chum line and piss off the mutton snappers that are down there, and one of them's going to follow it up. That's and there, there's my fly. Right. Same thing goes with amberjacks. Big amberjack comes up into our chum slick. You know, he's live chumming, and we got the bucket off there, you know, the bag off the back. And here comes some, you know, 25, 30-pound AJs. So he goes, all right, everybody slow down. And he starts taking live bait one at a time, throws a pilchard out there. The jack chases it down and grabs it, throws another one. Boom, chases it down and grabs it. Three or four of those, then he crushes it and throws it out there so it's floating. It eats it. Now throw your fly. And it's just, you know, you get that, you get that knowledge by, you know, through trial and error. Well, for it's, 40 years, yeah, just you got a lot of, knowledge. you know, it's oh just unbelievable, you know. But you can only imagine how many years of trial and error to actually figure out the recipe. Oh, I know, you know. And, and believe me, there's probably, you know, you look at 40 years ago or 30 years ago, these guys that go out there. They didn't have Loran or right. they didn't have, you know, back when RT started in the 70s, 50 years ago, they had none of this stuff. You had mm -hmm. a depth finder and your watch and right. a compass. And he said, we'd run for, you know, three hours at such and such a speed in a 20-foot sea craft. Now he's running a 39 Yellowfin with trip 350s, you know. And, and But, you know, you think they're running the same distance but it takes three hours instead of an hour and a half or four hours instead right. of two, you know? And he goes, we'd get there, 
Well, we knew we were close, so now we got to start looking on the depth finder. Oh, there it is. Well, there's 50 Kobe on the surface and 40 Permit with their tail, you know, right. sticking out of the water. So the wreck must be over there. And, you know, it's like, what a time to be alive, yeah. you know? Did you ever fish the um, dry Tortugas? I've, I've never been there. I've been north of the Tortugas, but I've never been to the dry Tortugas. Right. Who's the best captain you've ever fished with? Can you single... Probably, well, you know, depending on what you're fishing for, you know, right. like if I'm like right now I'm fishing with Brian DePerrick, right. you know, the Perrick's kid. So for yeah. home assassin tarpon fishing, yeah, it varies. you ain't going to beat him, you know, yeah. we're coming in high boat every day, you know, right. And, and, uh, you know, I fished seven days last year, six days last year, caught seven fish, had three fish the last day on the sand, right. You know, which to me was just, <sighs> You know, to sit on mm. that sand and see Watch these big, these oh my God, you know. What, it's uh, just, look. But uh, you, but for that type of fishing, RT, right. by far, and for offshore, it's Chris Sheeter. I mean, you know. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, There's Skip categories. Skip was 30, uh, 1989 I fished with Skip, so it was a right. long time ago. And, yes, yeah, Skip's right up there, too. Right. But Wink Dorsbacher, Will Dixon. All these guys, Captain VJ Bell, you know, I mean, I hooked a sword with him and lost it, and I caught my sailfish with him in Mexico. And you Yeah, know, that's the an open-ended question I and, asked you. And, you know, Timmy Richardson, and, you know, I mean, yeah. I want to go to friggin', uh, whatchamacallit, uh, you know, Australian fish with him so bad, it just, mm -hmm. it hurts, you know. What fish and uh, location that you haven't fished that you're really eager to go uh, experience? You know, I mean, I'd like to go to Columbia. I want to go to Columbia. I want to do that freshwater crap. I want to do the peacocks again. You know, you and I you, did that week. On the Amazon. Years ago, yep, down on the Rio Negro, which was a bomb. <laughs> but now they got this fishery up in Columbia, which is... It's kind of remote and a little bit difficult, you know? So in my, like I said earlier, my idea of roughing it is a slow waiter. So, you know, <laughs> if I've got to, if I got to hang out on a rock or a hammock, you know, my back's going to be a little angry and life ain't going to be good. What and fish is down there that you want to They got do? peacocks, they got, they got a, a payara, uh -huh. and they got this cool thing that's like a tarpon called a sardinita. Which is, I mean, it's like a really big herring. It's a freshwater fish. It probably gets, you know, 10, 11, 12 pounds. It doesn't get giant, mm -hmm. but it's magzalay. Its whole mouth structure is just like a giant threadfin wow. herring. So it's like a tarpon. That's right. just a big herring, you know? And, you know, like Nikki and I, you're so fortunate because you've got a son, Marlon, who loves to fish, yeah. you know? So now you're, you know, you're traveling. Yep. You know, with the, with your cub. Yeah, my, that, my man cub. Yeah, my buddy. Yeah. Well, bef know? before we start to wrap up, I really want to ask you about the, the record dolphin you caught. You caught a 53-pound dolphin yeah. on 16-pound yep. test. Yeah, 53 that's, and a half. See, this is... That's this still is the world record today. 32 years. Yeah, this is a segue into Panama. I don't even know if I want to say it. Top secret. <laughs> but it <laughs> but is no, the Millhouse. I, I mean, not, not Panama, but Colombia. You know, they've got some, uh, you know, you're fishing out of pangas, you know, right. so, you know, it's not going to cost an art. It's not going to cost five grand a day. And, and, uh, I got to bring all my gear and, uh, you know, go for it. But they get some big dolphin there. They're only 40 miles from Tropic Star. They're only 40 miles from Penis Bay. It's the same line. And that's, that's just the biggest dolphin in the world. And Stu Apt, you know, love you, Stu. Really want to beat your record. It, what's that big? 57 on 12. 
Yeah. So you it's st- doable. It's hard to even find them. That well, big. that's the problem. You right. know, that's this is probably the one spot in the world where they'd be. So you still want to pursue that record? Yes, on 12. yes. I want to. I, I, I'd like to get to twenty. I've got the sixteen. I'd love to twelve and the eight. I'd like to rewrite the dolphin category. And you know what? You could do it there. Right. You, you know, know what I want to do is go catch a uh, free swimming striped marlin in Mags Bay. That and I want to go to Fraser Island and catch free swimming black marlin in ten feet of water. Crazy, and I got right? the guy Andrew Chorley. Chaza. Is that pretty consistent? Absolutely. Right now, well, November, uh, end of October, November, December, it's consistent. Because I think that for me, uh, my last fish, I foresee maybe waiting for a big tailing bonefish, a big yeah. twelve pound bonefish yeah. waiting. But also a lot of these billfish, you've got to tease them, yeah. bait and switch. But to go to Mags Bay and find right. this big uh, striped marlin feeding yep. on bait balls, yep. you're out there in a ponga and you're free casting a fly rod. Steve Ward did it this year, yep. I believe. Yep. Yeah, I was down there in June. I caught a big rooster fish with the same guys. You know, Los Rocos or Los, right. yeah, what do they call themselves? It's George and Rudy. It's okay. uh, crazy. Los Locos. Los Locos. Los, Locos. Yeah. Los Crazy. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but uh, in the winter. That's what they do. They go yeah. to pongas and catch these striped marlin. Right, right. Know? Well, you know, Pat goes down with Hunter to do the underwater photography thing, and they, they dibble a little fishing, and they said this year was tough, but when they finally got out there, they got some great photographs and got some fish. Caught a few fish, but yeah, yeah I, I, I mean, that's all good and dandy, but that 10-foot deep friggin' black marlin in Australia. On the beach, oh, I can't even imagine. Like watching I mean, the tarpon come down the field. It is, the it yeah, is. I, marlin. I mean, what I mean, I had Andrew Chorley ended up in Stewart, so I took him fishing. I put him up at the fish camp. I took him out for a day. We caught some jacks. That was, you know, what do we fly fishing, Stewart? You got jacks. That's what right. we got. You know, but, well, they got giant trevally. We got giant crevally. Right. You know, they weren't even that big. You know, <laughs> but it's, uh, so anyway. You know, we're, we're we're talking, and and he's like, "Yeah, mate, you can, can fucking come on down, man. You know, it's awesome. You know, the if it's black, you throw at it, you know." And I'm like, "What is that?" And he goes, "It's a black marlin. It's a long fin tuna, or it's a GT, mate." And you chuck that fly and hold on, because whatever they're gonna eat it. And I'm like, "Really?" He goes, "Oh yeah, we sh- catch the free swimming black marlin all the time." And they got it's ten feet. I mean, the, that's the, crazy. It's sort of like. Take a piece of land like Cape Cod. That's right. sort of what Fraser Island does. Hook. It sticks out. So these fish are coming, they're heading south. And instead of, you know, they go from like, you know, 1,000 feet up into 10 feet in like a quarter mile or something like that. And they kind of get up on this flat and they sort of get lost and they mill around and they stay there for a few days. And wow. I've heard um, there's another dude over there, Jonathan... Can't remember his name. Yeah. Maybe Jonathan Jones. Is it? I thought he's got a big long beard and he's a crazy loco. Okay, maybe. Yeah. So he's. Uh, I think he fishes with Nautilus stuff, and uh, he was. I ran. I met him at ICAST a few like five years ago. And they're fifty to one hundred and fifty pounds. They're they're ten to sixty pounds. Ten to sixty. They're oh, this cool. big to that big. Oh my good yeah. gosh! And and when they're juvenile, they're they're. When when Jim Dowling and all these guys started catching them back in the late 80s in Cape Bowling Green in Townsville, they didn't know what they were because the peck fin's moving. Black Marlin, the peck fin is right. rigid. Right. Once they get to like 80 pounds or 70 pounds, that peck up. fin firms up. But they were getting them, and they got a big dorsal. 
almost kind of like a miniature sale with, you know, the, the classic Marlin thing. But instead of, instead of the fin coming up and then down and then tapering along the back, it actually comes up. And then like comes a like that, like a little sail. And so, how are they fishing for them? Are they are they pulling a skiff? No, they're idling along with an electric motor or the engine running. I mean, when I fished in Exmouth with Jono Shales, he literally stands on the cooler with the engine running and one foot on the wheel. And you know, he goes, "Hey, cover that!" You throw over there, and boom! You catch a you know one of them golden trevallies or a striped trevally, or you know, and they got bonefish. I mean, Exmouth is probably I would say it's the number one. If you really want to go somewhere and saltwater fly fish, just go all in, book 20 days, because you're not going to fish all 20. You're going to fish maybe 15 or 12. Weather. Just weather. It's, yeah. it's windy. You're there. It's, you're sticking out in the middle of the Indian Ocean. Right. And But it's flats, but they regulate everything. You've got all these markers that line up that when you're in this zone, you just keep going. You don't even stop. Kind of like the barrier reef, mm-hmm. you know, they've got all these rules for the thousand little reefs that comprise the barrier reef and the Coast Guard flies it over every day. They fly over it in, on the east coast of Australia. You'll see their Coast Guard every single day Monitoring. flying over wow. to make sure that you're not anchored in a spot you're not supposed to be anchored in or you're not fishing in a spot you're supposed to not be fishing in. And you're not stopped in a spot you're not supposed to stop That's the in, way you, you know? like to see our snook fishing uh, in the I summer regulated. I would love regulated. to see that, yeah. You know, yeah. I threw that out on Facebook years ago, man. And, I mean, you'd, you'd have thought I'd have just, you know, Kill shot children. somebody's kid, you know. Yeah. I mean, they jumped on me hard. And I'm like, you know, guys, I get it. Mm-hmm. It's easy. It's, you know, you can sell your trip. But it's it's easy, but, but it's, it's bad. bad. It's not right. going to help us in the long run. Right. And now it's not. I mean, there's... We're fishing for, well, I don't, but the guys do. And they'll sit there. They used to catch 20 in a day. If they catch five now, they're happy. What are you talking? Snook? Snook Snook. in the summer. And in in Australia, the barramundi, they just don't do it. And law enforcement, you know, needs to pay attention. Yeah, I mean, I wish we could make it a rule that you're not allowed to fish for them. Right. Because if you're here, you're snook fishing. If you're here, you're snook fishing. If you're here, you're snook fishing. Period. That's all that's there. When you're chucking live bait up against a jetty in July and August, duh, we know what you're doing, you know? What and do you, what do you have left, Nikki? No, I mean that cover. We covered a lot. We did. Um, we really went uh, the spectrum. Oh, I'm not. I'm just getting going. <laughs> <laughs> I know this, you know. But okay, I'll talk about that dolphin real quick. So, we're in Mexico. I got my girlfriend. We're in Isla Harris, Isla Maharas, and I got my buddy Donkey, my good friend Scott Loper, who fought. We fished all over the world together. You know, he's just one of my dearest best friends. I'm Shrek. He's Donkey, and <laughs> and we've been from Argentina to the DR to Mexico to Canada. We fished all over the place together. North Carolina, Destin, you know, we've been all over. So he's my good, he's my go-to pal. He'll put up with my shit and we'll go fishing and have a couple laughs. Plus that, you know, he likes to see me fly fish and I like to see him catch shit on a bait, you know, spinning rod or whatever. And we're just dear friends. We've known each other our whole lives. So we're in Mexico and we're trolling. We got half the boat out because I'm throwing the fly and Will Dixon yells down, hey, we got a decent dolphin on the short bait. 
So I tell Booty, I go, hey, grab it, boom, fire out of value. So Booty's dropping down, and then Will goes, hey, I got a big one on the rigger, big one on the rigger. Come on, get that shit out of the water. So they, boom, we wind it up. I throw the fly. This fish piles all over it, rips out, I don't know, 80, 90, 100 feet of water of line, jumps and throws the hook, slaps down on the water, turns around and comes pretty much right back at us. And I'm looking at Will going, can you believe this? And Will's going, <laughs> spinning the boat, getting the boat to move over. John Legrone throws another bait. Boom, 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 piles on it. I same take the fish. fly. No, same fish. I just dropped. I just go like this. Boom, right in the water. You know, we're all ready. Boat's in neutral, the whole nine yards. And I just flop it right there. And he just garbages it. Now he gets it all the way down. He comes up behind it and eats it like that instead of across, you know. And there were these old flies made by down at Beach Bait and Tackle. There wasn't anything available way back when, you know, billfish flies that were really A couple of white feathers. Yeah, I mean, it it just wasn't. You just didn't have a lot. John Donnell, I think, still owned Beach Bait and Tackle at this time. And these were the billfish flies. Before he bought uh, Craig Key. Right. <laughs> oh, don't even get me started. Don't even get me going on that one, baby. Just love to bring that up. Yeah. Oh, man. John Donnell, how can you not? Let me <laughs> just like you. to stir the pot. Love, love you, John. Me. Yeah, I was just going to say <laughs> that too. Don't come up on me on Craig Key, buddy. We're going to have some words. <laughs> but anyway, you know, so the fish, and then we gaff it, we throw it in the boat, and, you know, I look at it, and I'm like, yeah, this is, I think. All right, get on the radio. Find out if someone out here has got a record book. So they get on the radio and yeah, 20 pound tippet, 45 pound, or 16 pound tippet, 45 pounds. There wasn't even 20 pound tippet then. 45 pounds. And I look at the fish, I go, we got it. She's over 50. Did you eat it after you weighed it? No, we uh, took it in. We uh, had a mold made. I actually did. I actually, oh, cool. Will and John had, they had a freezer. So they took the fish and they broke it and they put it in the freezer and then when they came back to America, they brought it up, and Mike Kirkhart went and got it and made a mold out of that fish. And it's weird because it has a screwed-up dorsal fin. The dorsal fin had some old wound in it. Yeah. So the first 20 molds he made, or the first 20 blanks he pulled out of it had that funky, weird fin. Then he, then he tweaked the fin. I had one at the fish camp. It got stolen out of the chicky hut. So I called him and said, make me another one. He made me another one, and it had the new fin. So... Then I'm down at the shop one day, maybe a couple, three years ago, and he's got one. He goes, yeah, this guy brought it back in to fix the fin, fix the, not fix the fin, but it, it's the, the paint had sloughed off and right. so forth. I, I said, we'll just swap fish. Perfect. He said, bring it on in. So I brought it in you. and we swapped it and I got one with a screwed up fin again. Is that the greatest fish you've ever caught? Of it's, all these thousands know, and thousands of, of fish? It's a really good one because it's a record I'm real proud of because right. it's, you know, it's something that's on fly. That big snook record that I lost was a drag. I wish I could have got that, but uh, good luck catching a 33-pounder on fly these days, you know. Yeah, right. But uh, it's something to go for, but I took 20 years off. Maybe I'll try this year yeah. for it, you but know. What about that tarpon but that you That big tarpon was a great that? one, you know. That kind of, you know, if lack for lack of a better word, catapulted me into some sort of echelon of history. That, sure. You know, is kind of fun. And uh, I mean, and it's, uh, but you know, people ask me all the time, you know, what's, what's your favorite fish? What, you know, what fish are you dig? 
And my answer, really, it's pretty simple. It's the one I'm fishing for right now. Right. You know, I mean, yeah, I've been around the world. I've caught 700-pound black marlin and 600-pound blue marlin and on 130, and I've caught 300-pounders on fly and, you know, sailfish and tarpon and snook and jacks and trevally and friggin', you know, peacocks and dorado and pyara. I mean... I got to say the Payara, my first Payara on fly standing on the rocks of the Paragua River in in, uh, in uh, Venezuela, that was a rush because I'd seen these fish as a kid and, you know, some book and God, you know, wow, what a cool fish of the vampire fish, you know. And, right. And there, you know, and I throw, I tie all these flies with two hooks and we go down there and I catch one and... I actually kind of almost choked up a little bit when I held that first one. Oh, and I'm cool. just like, wow, you know, this is something. And then same thing kind of with a golden Dorado, you know, was another one. Right. And the peacock bass, you know, that was just too overwhelming. We caught 117 the first day, so I didn't have time to cry. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and well, uh, But no, you know, it's whether I'm catching, you know, a bluegill or a bass or a marlin or a tarpon or a mahi or you just have I a just, big I just love to fish fish i just it's my happy place it gives me peace it gives me a a certain contentment and wholeness that i feel in my soul that i'm out here i'm on mother ocean or even if i'm running in the intercoastal and you know boats are zipping by me i still look in front of me and you know i look at the mangroves and the pelicans and the roseate spoonbills and you know i take in the whole thing you know because it's so much more than just tying knots and fishing and you know from flying you know tying flies the reason i gravitated towards fly fishing was when i was a kid i fly fished in wyoming when i was about nine or ten years old and there was a professor out there at the ranch we went to hf bar ranch and professor platt from the university of maryland and he tied flies and taught me how to tie so i'm nine or ten years old tying flies on his in his cabin with his kids who one of them still works there, you know, and, and, and I just, I just, the fly thing, it's all about the cast, you know, to load the rod, to feel that, to watch that line unfold. It's art. To, it really yeah. is. It, it definitely takes you to a different level. And I tell people, well, if you've bait casted, spin fished or trolled or done all this, and that's kind of getting old, well, here, put this in your hand and right. give it a whirl. You know, it's going to be frustrating. I can't, I can just tell you to do this. It's just, it's this easy. Right. I mean, I can throw 70 feet sitting on a cooler on the bow of a boat without even trying. Right. You know? Well, look, we've covered a big spectrum. And I think the last appropriate question to ask you is what do you hope for Marlon? Your son. I hope for my son to, you know, maybe one day get a captain's license and, you know, run a boat and, and do that and feel that, you know, to have that responsibility to make sure that everything's working. And, you know, when the boss man comes in or when you're fishing these tournaments in Costa Rica, I want him to be happy. If it gets to be a job and it sucks, then do something else, you know. Mm-hmm. But I've told them, you know, you're 22. You've been doing it now since you were 19. You've been actively involved in mating and fishing at a pretty high level with some pretty high intense characters, you know. VJ Bell, Timmy Richardson, he ran a boat and he went up and worked for people blind. He answered a phone call and went to Virginia. And, you know, he's now working for Brandon and uh, he's worked for Wink Dorsbacher. So he's worked for some heavies in the industry, you know. And I just want him to be happy, 
to feel fulfilled and, and, you know, get a little salt in your face, you know? And then after you're 30, 35, you become a yacht broker. You know, you sell a couple of Vikings and, and sail off into the sunset, you know? <laughs> I mean, I mean, these things are going for, you know, millions upon millions of dollars. So, I mean, you scratch it. You get someone to scratch a check in front of you on the closing day, you know, you're going to put 50 grand in your pocket. Right. You know, and if you sell a multi-million dollar boat, a $10 million, God knows what else, you know? Right. Right. I, I do want to talk about, there's one guy who's embarking on a trip this year, Anthony Shea. Do you know this guy? No. Bad Company Fishing? I know the name. He's Bad putting 170-footer in the Pacific and 150-footer with his 144. I mean, the guy's got boats coming out of his ears. Right. And But he's a wonderful human, and he's doing uh, great stuff with veterans. But this is the madam and the hooker on steroids. This is one operation in the Atlantic and one operation wow. in the Pacific. It is a charter? No, it's private. Service. And he is a very, very passionate man about swordfish on surface. I can't, I am looking, this is, I don't get excited about much, but Anthony's program, that's exciting. I'm looking forward to seeing how this unravels because he is just constantly going at it at such a level above and beyond anything I've ever seen. Well, after, after his expedition, we got to have him on the podcast. I'm Absolutely. sure he's been seeing he's, some And crazy he created stuff. Lone Depot. I mean, the guy's a mover groover. He's a yeah. very successful entrepreneurial gentleman. And Anthony Shea is a pretty far out cat. Kerry Chen's a good friend with him. And awesome. uh, just really a neat thing for us all to look forward to, the continued expedition of bad <laughs> company, you know. And his captain, Steve Lastly, got into the Hall of Fame. Or not, right. not the Hall captains of Fame, but captains, and, yeah. Right. Really, and he's on the board now of that steve is and just right. you know the california contingency and another thing i want to say we need to recognize the guatemalan mates for their contributions to fly fishing and circle hook fishing because we would not be where we are today without their contributions the captains especially nicholas melendres Nico, as he's known down there, he's touched 40,000 billfish. Wow. More than God. anybody on the planet. And Nico needs to be in. The captain's and there's a some, Hall of Fame, possibly. He, he's in, right, legendary captains and crews, you know. And, right. and, you know, some of the Richard Chalimi, these kind of guys, you know, mm -hmm. that really pioneered that whole Costa Rica thing. And, you know, I don't know. I think the IGFA needs to open up. And maybe have a 10-person year instead of a five-person year and right. keep the speeches more people to five in. minutes. Right. You right. know? I mean, Nico's going to get up there and go, blah, 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 blah. Arriba, arriba. Gracias, amigos. See you know, see ya. <laughs> I mean, Adios. you know, he's not going to be, you know. <laughs> yeah. Nico doesn't speak much English, but I've never seen a better mate. He is just, in my opinion, one of the finest gentlemen and humble, and he doesn't make a move in the cockpit without completing a task. Period. Efficiency. I don't care if he's just walking around the chair. He stops at the chair and straightens out the gloves and then comes around and, and puts together 20 bonitas wow. or tunas, you know. So I mean, cool. the guy's really far out. It's kind of like when you go offshore. <laughs> Straight, yeah. Straighten everything out. That's, make sure everything's perfect. The kite's up. Yeah. <laughs> I, I go out, and my quest is to get a um, goggle eye out, you know, yeah. under the kite. Uh, and not get seasick before he gets out to the right. lake where I want to fish it. 
And then I look at my watch and I think, if I can leave right now, I'll be on the golf course in 30 exactly, minutes. Yep, oh, yep, God. Yep. Offshore right. <laughs> and I don't. We don't get along very oh, well. You, well. Well, the good thing about that Fraser Island fishery down in Australia right, is yeah. it's it's only 10 feet deep. You can The I beach can, is right there. I can handle See, the that. thing with offshore is you lose the horizon. Right. You, you kind of lose a perspective and then your inner ear starts going haywire. Because, I mean, even to this day, if I stick my head down in the console... Ugh. Yeah, I feel it. Here we go. Yeah, right. You know? Well, Rufus, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. It's my it. pleasure. You've always been such a joy to hang out at the IGFA, the big banquets, uh, the trip we took to uh, you know, the Amazon oh, so long awesome. ago, those big peacocks. But you are really a, a treasure to the sport, you know? And well, thank, thank you, you so I much for all it. you do. Oh, anytime, man. And thank you. All right, pal. Take care. My pleasure. Thanks so yeah, much, My Rufus. pleasure. Thanks Rock for coming. On, gentlemen. Yeah. Tight loops and lines. <laughs> Love you, dog. You too. As you can see, Rufus has been around and knows firsthand about the big world of fishing, conservation, and giving back to a fragile sport that needs all of us now to preserve what we have left for future generations. It sounds trite, but it couldn't be more true. If you've enjoyed this episode, please do us a favor and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. And if you'd like to see more content or behind the scenes, please follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. We'll see you again soon.